You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. All right, everyone. Today, we've got Nathan Berry. This is interview number two. He's the CEO and co-founder of ConvertKit, which is email marketing software company for creators, but it actually does a lot more than that because Nathan's constantly been adding to it. And Nathan's still bootstrapped, correct? Correct. Cool. Just according to Bear Metrics, because they build in public $25 million in annual recurring revenue, key customers. We got Pat Flynn. We got Tim Ferriss. We got my podcast co-host, Neil Patel. Chris, I can't pronounce his last name. Just call him Chris G, Gretchen Rubin, all these people. So anyway, Nathan, welcome back to the show. How have things been since we last spoke? I think it's been like a year and a half, two years. Things have been good. Been continuing to build and, and ship products. So it's fun. Cool. So for this one, I want to go high pace, smash as much value into this as, as possible. So for those of you that haven't listened to the first one, go check it out. For this one today, I want to be talking about you know a lot of cool company stuff. I think we're going to start with growth tactics first because people like that and then I'm going to move into company stuff. So one of the first questions, this actually came from my team is what's some ninja stuff people are doing right now to drive their email conversion rate up? Because I I just saw you put something up with Dave Perel talking about like a 5% conversion rate. So what have you seen work really well? Yeah. So I don't know that it's actually anything that's totally new. And it's probably a lot of the things that have worked years ago, but are like, you still just execute on them. One example, and in that David Bell example that you're referencing from Twitter, you know, what he's doing is a really targeted call to action, you know? So if you're giving away something really specific tied into the content, content upgrades in that way work really well. You know, honestly, once you do that, then it's just all about driving more traffic to the individual post, you know? And so look for those posts that are performing and keep working on the search and traffic for that and everything. You know, so it turns into more of a search optimization promotion play rather than a like, I published the post and nobody came to it. And so I moved on and published the next post. You know what's helpful with that? I think we all know content, or I guess not we all, I, I think we probably take it for granted. Content upgrades, when you put something specific to the post, you know, you can get up to like a 20, 30% conversion rate. But what is a very duh thing to me is like, oh yeah, you should probably promote that post because it converts really well, but people stop right there with the content upgrade. So just, you know, what's old is now new again. So I think people should think of that because that's something I don't think of often. Cool. Yeah. The other thing that I see a lot of people doing is a content ladder in their paid advertising where they have one article that maybe has a good content upgrade or something like that. And they're promoting, like driving paid traffic to that. And then for the people that engage with that, they're retargeting those people with a, hey, if you enjoyed this, like sign up for the list. Because so many people are just like, I tried ads because people said that I should. And so I started driving paid traffic to my newsletter subscription form or whatever. It didn't work and I gave up. And it's like, well, you try to go from zero to a hundred in the relationship. And so if instead you work up to it more gradually of like, oh, I've been, you know, seeing Eric's stuff over time. It's been popping up in my Twitter feed, you know, on Facebook. I've been enjoying it. Then when it's like pops up with, hey, you should subscribe, you'll do a lot better. And by the way, that works really well. I mean, you know, I've been big on Twitter ads in the last kind of 365 days. You're basically retargeting people and they've seen your face already. So if I like ConvertKit, I like Nathan and Nathan's sharing, you know, more content driving them to his list. It makes a lot of sense and it's cheap as well. Just depends on who you're targeting. So last, um, last thing on that, Twitter threads also work ridiculously well. The biggest thing is people think like, oh, a Twitter thread, I can take my article and just like, chop it up into 25 little tweets and that'll do well. It won't. What does well is if you treat 
each tweet as a standalone thing where it could stand by itself and deliver value. It has media with it, whether it's just a simple image or something else. But like to give you an idea, I wrote a blog post called The Billion Dollar Blog that did well. But when I wrote a Twitter thread and you know, I spent probably an hour, hour and a half writing the Twitter thread after I'd written the blog post, making sure that each thing had a hook, that it flowed into the next one, that it had good media all the way through. You know, that drove like thousands of Twitter followers and then a lot of of newsletter subscribers from it. Got it. And that's a good point because sometimes what I try to do is I'll take, uh, because our our marketing school podcast is daily. I'll try to make a thread from it and I'll half-ass it. I mean, I'll, I'll spend five to 10 minutes on it. I'm like, good enough. Put it out there. Doesn't do well. But when I'm more thoughtful about it, we're talking 30 minutes, an hour, whatever, it it does a lot better. Right. So I think it's, you got to treat it with love because people can tell immediately. Right. Turns out copywriting matters and you got to have your hook and you got to follow through. For sure. Okay. So companies at 25, I think last time we talked, I think it was, God, it has to be 10 or 15 or so. What's working for you guys in terms of growing the company? Yeah. So this last year we launched a free plan that helped us. We've added 250,000 free users in the last 12 months, which we're pretty proud of. So that's been big, you know, a lot more word of mouth. Conversion rates have actually been pretty high. We didn't know what to expect because in free to pay conversion rates in SaaS, like you hear anything from like 0.5% to like Spotify is at 25% or, you know, or like these crazy numbers and this huge difference. So we're sitting at 5% free to pay conversion rate. We were like expecting or planning for three. So we're pretty happy on that. So we got a much bigger footprint. That growth has been good. And then honestly, it's a lot of like predictable channels, affiliates, organic search is really big for us and continues to drive a lot more. You know, it's just nice having organic search drive like 40% of your traffic and just show up consistently no matter what. So yeah, those are things that have been working. We've obviously added new business lines. We added ConvertKit Commerce this year. So you can now sell digital products directly through ConvertKit. And then big, you know, so now we, we make money off of a portion of the credit card fee that you know, from everyone who's selling their eBooks and courses and Lightroom presets and whatever else. Talking about expansion revenue, I mean, you just talked about this new feature. How do you think about when it's the right time to add new stuff? Because you can add features all day, right? So, and I know, I know for you, you're a very focused person. So yeah. how, how do you stay deliberate about that? Yeah, I mean, we have our teams adding features and building out new functionality all the time. That's been a big shift is probably over the last 18 months, we've doubled the size of our engineering team with that in mind. So most of our new hires have been product and engineering to drive that sort of growth. Nearly everything that we build is just inside of the same plan that you're paying for. So we don't drive expansion revenue for the most part through like buy these add-ons. We drive it through helping the creator be more successful, get more email subscribers, and then they naturally go up based on usage. So if I were starting a SaaS company today, having usage-based pricing you know, our success is tied to our customer success would be non-negotiable. Like when I look at platforms that are, you know, really struggling to get people to upgrade from one plan to the next, it's like, I just wouldn't get into that business model. Whereas in email, you know, even when you go from 5,000 subscribers to 10,000 subscribers, you pay us more and, you know, you're pretty happy about it because your business doubled in size. And so for freemium, how many emails subscribers do they get before they start to need to pay? Yeah, they get a thousand email subscribers for free. And then there's other things. So subscribers is not necessarily the biggest driver of free to paid. It's usually people wanting to unlock the full automations features or remove powered by branding or something else. There are a handful of features gated, but but automations, branding and emails, and then things like 
there's little things like being able to embed HTML and stuff like that. That's okay. not in the free plan that helps as a, as a feature gate. I guess I'm curious too, how did the product team figure out which features to prioritize or which features to lock? Were you using any behavioral cohorts in your analytics? Like what were you doing exactly there? Yeah, so we actually started, when we made the switch to a free plan, we had over 25,000 paid users and a lot of them on our base plan. And so we wanted to limit the amount of downgrades. Like we didn't want to come out with a free plan and be like, oh, there goes 250,000 in MRR like overnight. And you're having to dig out of this hole because that that's just demoralizing for everyone. And so what we wanted to do or what we ended up doing is launching a pretty limited free plan. And so it was just our landing page builder at first. And then the next step was if you invited a friend, then you had to unlock email sending for up to hundred subscribers and you could keep inviting friends to go up from there. And then we bumped it up where everyone got hundred subscribers free in email sending. And then it was 500 and then a thousand. And we did that over the course of six months. So January to June of last year. And it meant that we didn't have a big contraction hit and we got to keep like gently testing things without doing something crazy or uh, right. any of that. And so we're just continuing to play with it. And now we're looking at like, okay, what does it look like to add the ability to do like a single visual automation or an automation with that's a little bit more stripped down um, where we can still find that balance between, well, it's basically a balance between trying to give as great of a free product away as possible that you get all the attention, all these people in the door and it being really useful, right? And still not giving away so much for free that you can't make any MR to fund the business. And so we're just constantly playing with that tension. And I think the next thing that we'll do is add some automations to the free plan. Got it. So what I'm hearing is with freemium, it wasn't like, hey, this is the end all be all. It's you constantly tweak a little bit. You, you kind of also leveled up the freemium a little bit and took things away as needed. Is that correct? Yep. That's exactly right. Got it. I guess, have you guys kind of broken things out from, you know, okay, we, we launched freemium. How much ARR have we added from freemium? Do you have any numbers like that? I don't have that directly because now everything, all traffic basically gets pushed through freemium or it's 95% of all of our signups. And so since we didn't do a perfect split test, then we don't have that sort of idea of like, this is what it's added. Got it. Okay. I do want to talk about what you have behind there. So it says create and literally you built the home that you're sitting in right now. And you literally started from designing, blogging before you still write a lot. So very much, what does that word create mean for you? And then also how does that translate it over to selecting your niche for, for ConvertKit? Yeah. So I think of myself as a creator, both in that I make things as a designer and writer and woodworker and whatever else, but it's also a mindset. Like I think of creators as the type of people who think there's a level of optimism that comes with this, right? Of the future will be better than the present because I will make it so, right? And so a creator is this type of person who takes charge of their situation and is not like sitting back waiting for things to happen or all of that. It's like, yeah, I'm going to make this feature. I'm going to create a better future for myself, for my family, for my community. And so those are the kind of people that want to serve, right? When you're hanging out at a conference or you have friends, over, you know, the people who are making things and you see them make progress, they're just fun to hang out with. And so when you're going to build a business, you know, like whenever we start businesses, we, you know, we tend to chase a little idea and then it turns into something that we go, oh, we can build this into something much bigger. But what you don't, or what's a little harder to, to be deliberate about is like, wait, whichever you're choosing, this is the type of person you're going to hang out with for the next five years, the next 10 years. So do you love hanging out with realtors? No? Well, maybe don't build a realtor, like a SaaS focused on realtors, dentists, like whatever that group is, 
If you love hanging out with and serving that group, amazing. Start your business and go down that direction. But if you don't, then like, don't, you know, say you're going to go after this market because it's a great opportunity. Because one, it, it takes way longer to build anything meaningful than you might think. Like in two weeks, I'll be at eight years working on ConvertKit. So it's yeah. like, it takes a long time to get this traction. And so you're going to have to spend a ton of time with those customers and being deeply embedded in it. So make sure you love it. And so being a creator myself, like there's no group that I'd rather serve than creators. And so that's been fun to keep ConvertKit focused in on that niche. Got it. And just for everyone to know, I mean, if you go to convertkit.bearmetrics.com, you can see their open metrics and you can, it took a long time. We're talking, I think it's, it's pulling up for me right now, but you know, for the longest time, let's see, you started at what year? Did you start 13 uh, January? Yeah, 2013, January 1st. Okay. You go two years out to August 15th, 2015, and the MRR is at 20,000. Now the MRR is at 2.1 million, right? So this stuff takes time to, to Nathan's point. Before I actually go into talking about building in public, what are your thoughts around niching down? Because the create behind you, it, it feels like it's very much your, you know, people say, oh, you got to find your why, but it does feel like that's your why and that's what you're going to be doing, right? So has that held you guys back or, you know, how are you thinking about it now? It's like, oh, this is perfect for us or do we need to think about expanding? Yeah, I'd say, well, a couple of things. One, you're spot on with it being our why. Right over my shoulder is a little plaque. It's too small to read, but it says we exist to help creators earn a living. And that is front and center on our mission page. And you'll see it all throughout our marketing and everything we do of like, we align our success with our creator's success. And that's why we're so excited about having a commerce product, right? Where now it's like, we can track dollars earned on ConvertKit um, directly. So that's been something that has served us really well. And we just continue to double down on it. And I don't know, what was the second part of your question? Yeah. So the, the second part is selecting creators. It seems like it's worked, worked out well for you guys are at 25 million ARR. Mm. What are your thoughts on, do you, are you guys going to stay in that niche or is it like, Hey, it's time to expand. We've got to go for a hundred to 400 million ARR. Like what are your thoughts? Right. Yeah. So years ago when I was looking to raise money, which I'm really glad now that I failed at raising money, you know, most venture capitalists that I've talked to would say like, Oh, bloggers or creators, like that's way too small of a market. And, you know, what's been interesting is since we've been serving this creator market for so long, the market has expanded like crazy. And now you just see so many things, you know, like Google Ventures reached out the other day and we have no interest in raising capital, but we still get, you know, all of these emails and they were just like, oh, we're so like, we're trying to invest as much as we can in the creator industry because we see it taking off. And so really what's happening is not that we need to go from creators and expand to something else. It's that we picked the small market and it's just, the market's growing faster than we can even keep up with. Got it. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you look at YouTube, everyone, I, I think the word now is YouTube creators. Everyone wants to be an influencer. So it very much, if you think about it, yeah, it absolutely is expanding. And I think it's a great spot that you picked, but it's very fortunate that it's expanding. So another example on that, like I got into blogging and you know email marketing and like building an audience as a creator, say back in 2010 is when I started paying attention to it, 2012. And the people who had the biggest audiences then, like Leo Babauta from Zen Habits, you know, is named as like a top 25 Time Magazine best websites, you know, that kind of thing. Like looking back, that was, I don't know exactly what he had, but maybe 20,000 email subscribers. Like that was considered a big list in 2010 for, you know, a blogger creator type. The direct response marketers had bigger lists, but right for the, the more creator type, that was, that was a big deal. Where now the people who have big lists are, you know, like I think James Clear put on his site that he just passed a million subscribers for his newsletter. And it's like, oh, that's an, like, that tells you how much the market has grown that not only have the influential people in the space gone up a hundredfold in their audience size, 
but also there's just so many more people who see that and say, Oh, I want to be a creator like that. And so, you know, everyone's audience sizes are getting so much bigger and then just the number of creators is growing so much. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. And so real quick, why did you fail at raising? What happened there? Yeah. Well, I failed at raising two different times. One time we were at 8,000 in MRR and I went around to raise money from sort of like influencers in the, I don't know, say the blogging marketing space. And basically a bunch of people were like, this is interesting, but you don't have enough traction or like who else has invested. And like, if you get other big names on to invest, then I'm in, you know, but no one really wanted to write that first check. And then actually it was, (laughs) so we were at 8,000 in MRR. That was May 2015. And I tried again to raise in January of 2016 when I was at the Saster annual conference. We'd grown by then to 100,000 a month in revenue. So just like more than 10x growth in six or seven, seven months. And two things. One, like the biggest concern was that, you know, we we're focused on bloggers and creators and people were like, the market's not big enough. Right. Like, if you want to go after small business, we'll do it. But there's actually one investor. His name is Tamaz Tungas, and he's a blogger himself. He's from Redpoint. And I still remember it. We went on this walk around, you know, around a few blocks in San Francisco and he got it immediately. He was like, oh man, not only is this market huge and do I think that you will never have to expand beyond it, but even if you do, you'll just add adjacent markets. Like if you outgrow this, you just add adjacent markets. That's how it works. That is not at all a concern. But he was like, look, you're 100K MRR. You're growing 20% month over month right now. Don't raise money. If you are going to raise money, but otherwise don't raise money. And that combined with a conversation from Mike McDermott from FreshBooks, he said the same thing. And he was like, I know you have no cash in the bank. I know this is crazy stressful right now. And like, you know, your days of expenses in the bank keeps declining, but you can grow your way out of this problem. Stay bootstrapped, don't raise money. And so there was like 10 investor meetings. Eight said, no, I'm not going to invest. One said, hell yes, I'll invest, but don't take my money. And then one founder said like, nope keep bootstrapping. And so that's what we did. So I think it's fortuitous that the other people couldn't see it. And the two people, they gave you the confidence to keep going down the path you're going. So, Hey, by the way, if you ever let, you want to raise that, uh, let me know. But uh, <laughs> sounds good. let's talk about building in public. Cause I've actually, I've spoken to people on my team on the software side and you know, the debate is, Oh, if you build in public, there's competitors out there that can see everything we're doing, blah, blah, blah. So I guess for you, again, you're wide open. I can see your revenue churn, your user churn, all that stuff. Yeah. You're literally out there. How has that benefited you and how has that backfired for you? Yeah, so let's see. It's benefited in a few ways in that people talk about ConvertKit as a transparent company. Our team really enjoys that level of transparency. There's a thing, this thing in society where if I ask you how well your, your company is doing, you know, like normally people be like, oh, we're doing well, but I should say some proxy for it. So I'm like, we doubled our headcount this year and we plan to double again next year. And weirdly, we've decided that number of team members is the proxy that we're all going to use for how well a company is doing. And when you do that, what I think happens, I think human brains are not good at having an external metric and then actually making decisions based on an internal metric. So the external metric in this case being headcount of what I'm willing to talk about publicly and the internal metric being revenue, you know, profit. And so what happens is we conflate those two. Since I'm only willing to talk about headcount publicly, then I start to subtly optimize for headcount. And then you get into situations where you say you have a hundred people on your team and you're like, I'm going to double headcount next year. And it's like, okay, if that's the best byproduct of you doubling revenue next year, and that's what's going to happen. Sure. That's great. But that is not a goal that anyone should pursue. 
And so by talking, like, if you ask me how the business is doing, I'm like, great, 25 million a year in revenue, 50% this year, you know, like that kind of thing. I'm going to tell you the numbers that I'm optimizing for because I don't want to play that little mind game and like accidentally like trick. I don't want to trick myself into optimizing for the wrong metric. Got it. Makes sense. Uh, and, and so like, you know, people's objections around, Hey, you know, again, like let's say, okay, so our, our software is more SEO content team type of thing. Right. So it's like, Oh, SEM rush is doing this. Ahrefs is doing this. They can, they, they can crush us like a cockroach. You weren't worried about MailChimp coming after you at all. Right. Yeah. I think it's really hard for big companies to crush small companies, especially because you know, you're carving a wedge into that market. There's something that usually you're serving a specific part of it, right? Like Ahrefs or uh, Semrush, like they're doing something on such a big scale and they probably do nine things really well and the 10th thing really, really poorly. And you're not saying I'm going to tackle, I'm going to fight them in all 10. You're like, (laughs) that one they do poorly, I'm going to solve that. And I'm going to do it so well. And then that's going to be my wedge that I'm then going to take over the market. So it's really, really hard for big companies to say like, you know, I'm going to squash you. It might make the big company go, oh, I could buy you. And, you know, let me buy you early before that 20% month over month growth, like turns into a real problem. But I would say that giving competitors too much information is definitely a concern. And I had two friends who are well-known in the space at one point. I'm trying to remember, I guess it was in San Diego for social media marketing world. And I had dinner with two friends and they sat me down and they're like, look, Nathan, this is an intervention like take down the public metrics page. You're giving your competitors way too much. It doesn't serve you that much. And I really appreciated them bringing that up. And they're both brilliant, brilliant entrepreneurs. The thing is that for us, it's a mission thing. Like if you go back to the mission of we exist to help creators earn a living, then I want to leave those breadcrumbs. So someone else is like, okay, I'm at 20K MRR, struggling with churn. I wonder what ConvertKit's churn was when they were at 20K MRR. Filter back in the date range, find, you know, that exact time. Let's see, summer 2015. Oh, I can see all their metrics. I can see that whole thing. And so it's not just about like whatever marketing or press it gets us or anything like that. It's really about leaving that blueprint and as much information as possible so that other people can follow it. Because I think so many founders even have this idea of like, oh, sure, I I could build a 10K MRR, but I could never get to 100. Or maybe I could build to 100, but I could never get to a million. And so the more we can put out that blueprint, then people can go, really? Not only could I build a a successful SaaS company, but if I kept at it for, you know, another five years, another 10 years, like I could potentially build something to 50 million ARR, a hundred million. And I want to, I want to leave that for everyone else to follow. What I'm hearing is that the whole, it follows your mission, right? You're creating in public and you're inspiring other people to create. So naturally it makes sense, right? I'm going to rapid fire through a bunch of questions here. I got so many, but we can go on for probably another hour. But talk to me about, we didn't talk about incentives and profit sharing last time. And so you've kind of changed your mindset a little bit. You first, it was, you know, profit sharing for bootstrap startups. And then, you know, originally you were against equity. So A, okay, let's break this out. Let's talk about incentives on profit sharing. How do you think about that now for bootstrap startups? Let's go with that first. Yeah, so what I think about now for incentives, I like to think about compensation in four quadrants. If you imagine our horizontal axis is short-term compensation versus long-term compensation, and then our vertical is guaranteed versus performance-based, right? So then we end up with this grid. And short-term guaranteed is salary. Long-term guaranteed is 401k retirement match, that kind of thing. And like, we're not there yet, but one of my dreams is just keep bumping that up to where it's a ridiculous number. And our team is, you know, like getting into 10, 20, 30%, like retirement matches, I think would be super cool. So then if you get into short-term performance-based, 
That's profit sharing. And then long-term performance-based is equity. And I think people can over-index on one of those buckets of their like, you know, short-term guaranteed. And there's like, we just do salary or like, and salary and Christmas bonuses or something like that. Right. And it's like, look, you're missing out on letting people be a part of this performance-based compensation or they'll do profit sharing or like what's really common is just doing equity. And so it's like, look, I've got short-term guaranteed and then I've got very long-term performance-based and that can be good, but you're missing out on other quadrants there. So I went through various things. Early in ConvertKit, I was like, it's just me. So it doesn't matter. I don't have to think about this. Then when I brought on some early key employees, I did equity. And then I started to think, okay, I'm actually never going to sell this company. I want to build for the long time. So equity doesn't make sense. And so then I was like profit sharing instead. So there's like three or four very early people who had equity and then nobody else does. And we did profit sharing for a long time. And then I was like, wait a second, I'm saying that equity doesn't have value, but I'm currently spending over a million dollars to buy back equity from you know, an early team member who left. So it obviously has value on a secondary market or any of that. Like it doesn't have to mean that we sell the whole company. And then kind of the last thing is just seeing the level of value in the company that we're creating. I think it was at the point where I realized like, oh, this company's worth over $50 million. You know, that I realized I'm going to have more wealth from this than I will ever know what to do with or, or need or anything like that. And so I want to have the team being involved in that. And so a little over two years ago, we started doing stock options for the team in a more traditional sense, carved out an equity pool. You know, and in that time, we've got individual team members now who have equity that's worth over half a million dollars as we've, you know, 5X'd the value of the company. And so I like to look at it in that really balanced view. And I look at it from the perspective of, I'm going to build something wildly valuable and I want everyone to participate in that value. And I want them to participate in the short term as well. I'm just looking at your blog right now. Actually, there's a thread here. That's not it. Why I changed my mind on team stock options. There's stuff about incentives and things like that. So the profit sharing percentage, are you still doing 60%? What does that look like now? Yep. Still doing 60%. So no, we're now at, I should find know the final number, but we're now over two and a half million that we've distributed to the team in profit sharing. I think it's also really important. I actually just worked on this with my coach the other day. And so understanding that long-term, what are you building for, right? Like, for example, if you're like, I'm never going to sell it, equity doesn't make sense. But then you're like, oh, I might, maybe I will. Then it might make sense to, to flip-flop. I think for me, you know, my goal right now is building enterprise value. So maybe it doesn't make sense to have profit share, but maybe it does make sense to have equity if, the, if there's plan with enterprise value, right? So I think you have to understand what you're looking for and what you're optimizing for. And I think most people don't think about that. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, because you want to align incentives. And what I really tried to do is just tweak the incentives over time so it matches with what I want. So I want us to focus on building a company to 100 million in revenue, right? I want it, like, if we succeed in what we're trying to do, ConvertKit will be worth over a billion dollars. And so I want everyone to be incentivized to that. But at the same time, I don't want to be the, hey, we're going to grind it out for years. We're going to hate our lives. And then we're going to flip this company and, and go retire. Because I have no interest in that. And so I want to have like a reasonable pace. I want to take profits along the way and all of that. So that's why I have the, the profit sharing incentive because then everyone finds this balance between long-term growth and growing enterprise value and doing it in a healthy, profitable way. Because I, as a founder, like I live in Boise, Idaho. It's not an expensive city, but at the same time, like I enjoy taking meaningful amounts of money out of the company so that I can do other projects and stuff like that. And so then I never want to trade off with the team, but they're like, what are you doing taking that money out? We need it for growth to hit our enterprise value goals. 
And then just realizing that there's nuance in all of it. Like I thought, you know, you have to sell the whole company for equity to have value. And then you see all these secondary transactions that happen all the time. You know, it was actually realizing that when Atlassian went public, all of their funding rounds previously had been entirely secondary. There wasn't primary capital that went into the company. It was just letting the team members sell some of their equity for house down payments and, you know, like any of those things. And I was like, oh, right. When you build something wildly valuable, people always want to own a portion of it. And it's a little tricky to do in private markets right now, but give it another year or two years and we'll have the card as an angel list of the world who will just solve liquidity for us for private companies and it'll be easy. And I'll be there buying. And, and how often do you distribute? Is it once a quarter or, or once a year? We do every six months. Got it. You know what the thing is? I, I'm just thinking, and by the way, I think people need to consider this too. Like if Nathan were to take money, then all of a sudden the VCs are on him and it's like, you shouldn't be taking profit. And then he takes away the profit share and people are unhappy. Like there's second and third order consequences, right? Yep. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Cool. So I, I do want to talk about, cause you're in Boise, Idaho. You don't have, you've never had an office and we're in a remote first world now. So how do you think about recruiting? What's been the most effective for you in terms of getting world-class talent? Yeah. So, you know, we were doing remote. So now everyone does remote, but we've been doing it for a long time. And that was really helpful, especially when we didn't have, like we couldn't compete on salary in the early days, particularly in say San Francisco and New York, like not having um, a bunch of venture funding. It just makes it so difficult. And so being able to recruit from anywhere, you know, then you get these people who wanted to like, they didn't want to live in San Francisco. They wanted to live in San Luis Obispo, you know, or they had just moved to be closer to their family in Kansas city or something, but they're still incredible engineers. And so remote turned into this really, really valuable recruiting method. I actually think that uh, for it, for remote companies, it's going to get harder because now all the Facebooks and everyone else, like you can live and work in Boise, Idaho and, and Facebook is like, we're going to reduce your salary by 5%, <laughs> you know, or like, it's just like, it's not that big of a downside. So I think it's going to get a lot harder to recruit for, you know, remote first companies. But the other thing is we've gotten really good at company culture as a remote team and all of that. And so, and now we have the momentum and we have the cash flow and everything else so we can compete on salaries and equity and, and everything. So I guess all I'm saying is that I'm glad that shift is happening now. And we got to really take advantage of that window when we were one or of the, the tight companies. Yeah. How are you going about sourcing this talent just for people like, Oh, I, I want to learn how to recruit world-class people like Nathan. So. Yeah. So a few things, having a public profile for the company, right? Being transparent, telling our story all the way along, building an audience for the company makes such a big difference. The founders blogging and saying, Hey, this is what I learned this year you know, like go write posts. Like, you know, I wrote 15 lessons learned from the first $15 million in revenue and people follow posts like that. And that, like that gets voted on Hacker News. And then, then later when it, we have a job listing up on WeWork Remotely, someone's like, oh, ConvertKit, I read about that company. Now you have a brand. So that building in public and that transparency really, really helps. And then we do a lot of outbound recruiting. And that's something this last year that shifted. We used to rely on you know, posting all, all the job boards, you know, hire tech ladies, we work remotely, people of color in tech, you know, any of those communities. And that worked really well. And we get a lot of people in, but especially when you're looking for senior roles, you have to recruit and you can't dump it off to someone else of like, oh, I'll hire a recruiting firm and they'll take care of it. Cause they'll be the ones who are like emailing 
you know, to, to hire a senior engineer and they're like, you have to have 10 years of React experience. And they'll be like, okay, React was invented five years ago, right? Recruiters are famous for all of these things. And so you just, you can't outsource the problem. You've got to tackle it yourself. You can get help. That's assistants are great for it of like compiling a list. You run through it and be like, yes, yes, no, no, no. But it's just a ton of conversations. I've recruited both a VP of product and a VP of engineering this year. And, you know, it's just hundreds of hours of work. There's no way around it. And is that you, Nathan, just going into LinkedIn recruiter and sourcing and making lists of people? Is that what you're doing? Yeah. So we go, what are the companies we admire? Make lists of that way. What are the markets that we're looking for people in? Let's say that like our company tends to be more optimized over the past for like more rural environments. So we want to, from a culture contribution perspective, we want to add people more from bigger cities or who have more high growth tech experience, right? So we just start crafting lists from there. And then, yeah, LinkedIn recruiter. And then we craft a lot of individual emails. Yeah, makes sense. And so final question on this, what are you spending a day? Like when it's like, it's time to get a VP of products, all these senior people, are you spending like an hour a day, two hours a day? What does it look like? It probably averages to an hour a day because there is a lot of that logistical work that, you know, my assistant's doing and that kind of thing. So if we were to equate it to sales, it's basically like the sales rep versus the or say like an SDR versus a salesperson. Right? Yeah. There's one person who's sourcing it all. And there's that, that conversation about who we're trying to recruit and everything. Got it. Okay. So the one hour is all in, right? That's including your assistant's time. That would be my time Okay. of like, you know, conversations and sourcing and, and like reviewing the lists that my assistant has created. Got it. Makes sense. Cool. So working towards wrapping up here, I, I do want to talk about remote culture really quick. So what does work really well for you? Because I just saw a thread on Twitter the other day where, and I think this is genius, people are buying Oculus headsets for everyone and they're just playing Beat Saber and they're just hanging out, right? So what do you guys do that's unique for remote culture? I have not heard about that. that that's fascinating. Well, first you have to define what culture is, which is a whole conversation. So a couple of things. I think it means something different for a lot of people, but the core thing of what culture means at ConvertKit is it means trust. So do you trust me as a leader to lead effectively, to not micromanage you, you know, to set a clear vision, to make sure we have money in the bank, all of these things, to create a culture of psychological safety, to deliver feedback clearly and effectively? And do I trust you as an individual contributor to have free reign to decide on projects to I'll give you like the North Star metrics and then I won't micromanage you and in that process, you know, and I, and I trust that you'll make good decisions and I won't second guess you. And, and this whole back and forth. And I trust that you as an individual will give feedback directly to me as a manager. Everything we do is around creating like that culture of trust and safety. And then when, when you talk about company culture, you're like, Oh, right. It's not the beanbag chairs. It's not the ping pong tables and the free lunch. Like that's not culture. That's like little perks to get you to spend more time in the office right? Culture is how am I treated at work? What's the relationship that I have with my coworkers? What's the work that I get to do and the impact that I get to have? And so then all of a sudden you're like, wait, all of those things, yes, it's easier to build a little bit of that if we're like sitting down and having coffee, but you can still do all of that over Zoom. And, you know, like if you view culture as, I don't know, typical startup stuff, then yeah, if you go remote, you're losing 90% of that. But if you view culture as building trust and a great working relationship and all these things, and you go remote, you lose 10% of that. And so it's just a totally different mindset. Got it. And just give me one thing you guys have specifically done to build that element of trust. And then I'll give you my last question. Sounds good. We find that in-person gatherings are really important. So we do retreats twice a year. That's why profit sharing is twice a year because we like to do profit sharing in person. 
an example of something that we do at our retreats uh, is we do unsolicited feedback. And basically the way that this works is if you and I are friends or let's say we work together, it's kind of rude. If I came in and was like, hey, by the way, I think you should do this, 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 and this better. And you're like, uh, thanks. I didn't ask. Like, if I want your feedback, I'll ask for it, you know? And that's sort of the culture that we have. So you might be doing things that are holding you back in your career, annoying the team, but if it's not a big deal, no one will ever bring it up. And if you don't know to ask, like people aren't going to offer it. And so what we do is unsolicited feedback. And say you take a team, like our product team, and within that group, you sit around in a circle and we set a timer for 10 minutes. And during that time, we talk about whoever's in the hot seat as if they're not there. And so what you're going to get is the best compliments. It's the things that I would say about you behind your back, but not in the negative way. It's like, oh, Eric is one of the best marketers that I know. Like, I'm so impressed when he delivered on this project, I was blown away. I had this level of expectation. He blew it out of the park. And then also like some of the best criticism of the things that you need to hear. And there's two prompts that we use for this. One is if I'm going to work with this person for the next 10 years, right? What are the things that I should tell them now? so that they can work on fixing it. Because like, it's not annoying now, but if you keep doing this in five years, I'm gonna be annoyed, you know? Like, what are those things? And then the other side is, let's say that you're up for a promotion in six months, biggest opportunity of your career. I know it's coming, you don't. Actually, we all know it's coming except for, the, except for you. Like, what can we do? What advice, things you could fix to work on, could we give you so you have the best opportunity to hit that promotion in six months? And with that, a bunch of things happen. Like, you know, again, it's the best compliments that you receive and then the best constructive criticism. That timer runs for 10 or 15 minutes. We welcome the person back and be like, oh, hey, you know, and they've been taking notes the whole time. And then they get another five minutes to sort of go back and unpack those notes. And then they have that every six months throughout their career of their peers giving them really actionable Wow. Feedback. You guys do this live every time, unsolicited feedback. Maybe it's team specific, whatever, but that does kind of bring everyone together. That's great. I think it's called also called the the Johari window. So there's that as well. Yeah. I've heard heard it called other things. It's one of the things that we did as part of our mastermind group. Yeah. And there's variations on it. You know, it's one of those things that we just came up with like, hey, let's do this. And then you like, you go research it later and you're like, wait, this is actually a thing. <laughs> you know? In EO and YPO, they, they do it a lot. So I remember we did this at a retreat and this, we just blew this guy up, but it was all the negative stuff. But uh, yeah, but that, that, he took it pretty well. But anyway, Nathan, this has been great. I think we got to do like a third one so we can go deeper on, on more company culture stuff. Let's do but, it. Uh, what's the best way for people to find you online? Yeah. So I blog at nathanberry.com. I'm active on Twitter. I've got a new podcast. If you go to subscribe to the newsletter, you'll get all of those things. And then ConvertKit is just at ConvertKit.com. Cool. Love it. Nathan, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.